Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. The ad campaign that seems to run every, every year uh, is that Christmas starts with Christ. You may have seen it um, at various places. There's adverts and posters that appear in various parts uh, or a Facebook post or something uh, that Christmas starts with Christ. An important reminder from uh, Christians to non-Christians uh, that uh, this consumer-driven culture uh, that we live in, actually that Christmas is far more uh, than Christmas trees and turkeys and gifts and drinking and things like that and drinking and eating to excess. But you could say that actually Christmas, at least in its design, started a long time ago before the events in Bethlehem. Actually, the historical catalyst for Christmas was in a much darker place, in a moment that defined and distorted the human condition and human history in the Garden of Eden, a place of that very first sin. Christmas begins with Christ, for sure. But Christmas really was decided in the Garden of Eden when we ate the fruit, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Ground zero for the human condition was Adam and Eve standing at that tree in the Garden of Eden, giving ear to the whispered words of the devil, encouraging them to take and eat from the one place God asked them not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that moment, humanity in all of its entirety, because we were all there uh, within them, if you might say, defied God, broke his law, and sin became a thing and ravaged every part of human life and creation and the whole universe, bringing death to life. What is sin, you might say? It's a word that the world no longer uses, but we insist on using. This is a quote from Augustine, uh, which is quite old, so therefore still relevant. Um, Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. Sin is that moment when you decide, I want that feeling, or I want to do that, I want to be that kind of person. And maybe you take something you shouldn't, or maybe you hang around with someone you mustn't, or you watch something you shouldn't. You try to find that satisfaction and that sense of uh, fulfillment in the wrong place. And it becomes this broken, perverse, twisted thing in our lives, and we become a shell of the people God intends us to be. And it happens all over our society, and it's heartbreaking. It's here. But Christmas really starts. Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's a cheery place. But the world doesn't want to talk about brokenness. It wants to talk about John Lewis and lovely adverts where everything is awesome and everything is shiny and everything is clean. But actually it's into a dirty, broken, wrecked world that the Christmas story starts. Our Advent series is titled Prepare for the King. And we're going to follow uh, the lead up to Jesus' birth as we do every year. And we're going to see God readying his son, Jesus Christ, humanity's only hope from not the beginning of the New Testament, but the beginning of everything. 
Today in our reading, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, is from a secular perspective, the very least Christmassy verse anyone could ever read out around the Christmas period. But if you know your Bible, you know the biblical story, it's the most Christmassy verse that you could ever read at Christmas. Yes, there are no penguins and llamas, which of course appear in all the Christmas stories for some reason, um, but this is the most Christmassy verse uh, passage you could ever read for us, and that's why we're starting our Advent series with it. Let me read it to you. The Lord said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust, and you will all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. What, no bells <laughs> or crackers? What's going on? This is quite depressing stuff, isn't it? Surely. This is the very first action, really, after the fall. After Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. This is God's first reaction, if you like. Although God doesn't really react, because uh, he's an eternal being who knows everything. But this is the first post-sin action. What did you think of it, that passage that I just read? What struck you most about it? Was it the imagery? Was it the seriousness of it with the word cursing? That's quite a serious word. We don't tend to talk like that. What questions does it raise in your mind about God, about evil, about this serpent, this snake? Who is he? So a few things to say about what I've just read, and you can keep it open. It may appear occasionally on the screen behind me, I don't know. But the first thing I want to say is that really this, is, this part of Genesis, the Bible story, is bad news after good. The first two chapters of Genesis, it's all good, which is a modern phrase, it's all good. It's all good. It isn't all good for us. But for them in those first two chapters, it was just all good. Genesis 1 and 2, constantly we're being told God made and saw and it was good, it was good, it was good. He then made us and it was good, even we were good. The last time we were good was in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Since then there has not been a good human being except Jesus Christ who was fully human and fully God. But every single human being in any part of the world, any part of history has been bad ever since Genesis 1 and 2. Chapter 3 begins, and you think, this is just brilliant. This is going to be a brilliant story. And then tragedy strikes. Tragedy of humanity's own making. Is there any other sort? Are we not always our own worst enemy? We like to blame everybody else, but aren't we always the ones, really, that cause something? Aren't human- isn't humanity its own worst enemy? But the devil into that garden slithers up in the form, well, no, he doesn't, he walks up, sorry, in the form of a serpent, and he twists the words of God, these life-affirming, life-giving commands, eat whatever you want, go wherever you want, but just don't eat from that one tree, not designed as a shackle to limit their freedom, but a way of them worshipping God, a way of them obeying him. This is how you prove that you love me. This is how we relate by obeying this one command. We see it as a negative command. It was a good command from God. But this serpent wiles up to Eve, first of all, when he whispers that famous line, did God really say? Did he really say you'd die? You won't, surely you won't die if you eat that fruit. That has been his MO ever since the devil. He whispers up to us, does God really mind? Does the Bible really mean that? Does the church really teach that? If you watch that video when no one's around, does it really matter? If you take that thing that's going to harm you, 
It's not really a problem. If you lose your temper and lash out, surely that's okay. That's not the kind of anger God doesn't like. He whispers those lies and we fall for it time and time again. Just like Eve did. We often look at Eve and the disciples and Israel and we say if we were them, we would never have done it. I guarantee you, we would have done. Because we're as fallible and flawed as they all were. So if you read the Bible and you know what God has already said, the devil will twist those words that you know so that you end up getting all confused as to what God is actually calling you to do. A survey um, about a discipleship journal some years ago ranked the areas of greatest spiritual challenge to the average Christian, and the above average Christian for that matter. Uh, The first one was materialism. Most Christians say they struggle most with materialism. Then it's pride. Then it's self-centeredness. Then it's laziness. Joint fifth was anger, bitterness, slash sexual lust. Then it's envy, gluttony, and lying. These are the ten, uh, or ten or nine, uh, things that most Christians say they struggle with. That will be quite old, but I reckon that that's pretty spot on even today. Then the survey, uh, survey respondents noted that temptations were more potent when they had neglected their time with God, 81%. More potent when they were physically tired, 51, 57%. They also said that resisting temptation was accomplished through prayer, 84%. Avoiding compromising situa- situations, 76%. Bible study and being accountable to someone, 52%. Sin is everywhere the devil's lies are everywhere and if we're not up on what god doesn't want us to do then the devil will twist out his words god's words until we become confused and reach out and take and as adam and eve reached out and took that fruit sin they sinned against god and the consequences of our first parents are history long everything that has gone wrong since went wrong because of that one action has affected every single one of us. That action in that garden ruined every part of every aspect of creation and every relationship has been ruined as well in one way or another. Our relationships with each other are ruined and more sadly, our relationship with God is ruined as well. Adam and Eve come to know God's judgment, his righteous judgment for their sin, where they did only experience his unfailing love. But of course, God is loving as well, as we're about to see. So this is the most unusual of passages to read at Christmas, because it's kind of depressing. But it contains truths that lead us up to what will happen in Bethlehem all those years later on. Just a couple of things this morning to bring out from verses 14 and 15 of Genesis 3, if you've got it open. The first is what this tells us, the truth this presents us with, is the presence of evil in the world. What hits us is that now the devil has entered the story. Up until now, it's just been God, and it's just been us, and it's been all the animals and trees, and everything has been brilliant. But now the devil has entered the story. Satan is now part of our uh, human history. He's there with us. He's cursed, but he's not removed. Because to remove him, if you look at the story, the parable of the weeds and the wheat in the New Testament will have catastrophic effects on the righteous. So God is going to remove him properly, expertly, in totality. And so there he is. He's a part of our story now, whether we like it or not, whether you believe in the devil or not. He still wanders around whispering words of lies. All history, he he will carry on doing what he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden, except now rather than walking, he will slither up to us. 
in that snidey, horrible way and whisper over and over again, did God really say? Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 is a sobering reality check that we would exist with that snake, with his hissing lies, aiming to kill and destroy us until the end of all history. And we need only turn on the telly to see his workmanship. A couple of headlines from this morning from the BBC website, which hopefully we'll be allowed to show. Um, oh no, I really can't read that from there. Hang on. Um, oh, the coronavirus. A reminder that the world is broken. Migrant crisis. Honduras have got a, a controversial leader they're voting to replace. We've got tear gassing people in Burkina Faso. And John, next, next, next slide. You go along and you've got the, uh, the punishment for South Africa. We've got this poor tennis player that still is vanished. And everyone doesn't quite know what the Chinese have done with her. We see a, a rescue of 300 migrants in Italy. We see um, situations in Yemen, blindness. We see a Nigerian star exposing sexism in the music and film industries. And we may say, well, they're not that bad. But they're just a little reminder that all is not well. Nothing is fixed. Everything is broken. The serpent slithers still. The serpent breaks and kills and destroys still. And so the second truth from Genesis chapter 3 is that actually we will all live with this weird tension now since Genesis chapter 3. A tension between evil and all of humanity. It says um, in that verse, doesn't it? I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And before we jump forward to Jesus, which we do in a second, really what we're being told there is every single human being will live with this tension between the evil one and themselves. They will wake up every day and battle temptation, battle pain, battle loneliness, battle anger and violence in every walk of life. We will all be hurt and we will all hurt other people. And it's fascinating because as the book unfolds, the hope is that when Adam and Eve have children, that this sin, this brokenness will end with their parents and not be passed to the next generation. But then we meet Cain and Abel. Cain, the world's first murderer, and Abel, the world's first victim. One, a victim of evil. One, its perpetrator. And so they wait for the next child, the next child. And soon that hope is in vain knowing that this sin, this brokenness, is endemic in every single one of us. Humanity will, over the years from this moment, do everything it can to deal with this tension between evil and our lives. We will make law upon law upon law, all to no avail. Sometimes we'll become so liberalized that we will redefine what evil is to make it good, in the hope that soon that will deal with it. And that will be to no avail as well. That tension will always be there. But then this verse reminds us of hope as well. Because all is not lost. Because they were right. There will be a baby one day that will be born. But it won't be one of us, a fallen, broken human being. It won't be Cain or Abel or Seth or any one of the siblings that come afterwards, of which we're all related. One day someone special will come. And that one will come. And it will be different to every single one of us. He won't live with evil. He won't live with the tension of the evil slithering one. He would arrive with one purpose. To stamp on his head. And deal with that evil once and for all. He comes to stamp 
not to accept, not to live with, not to redefine it, but to kill it and destroy it forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. And yet, through his own suffering, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, the one that will come one day will destroy evil for good, but through suffering. And we already know that that's what happened on the cross. Jesus made a mockery of the law, made a mockery of death, emptied it of its power, emptied the, the evil of all of its power. He rose from the grave, but first he had to suffer in our place. This verse is known as Proto-Evangelum. There we are. And it's the first announcement, really, of the gospel that looks forward to the cross. And I find it wonderful that almost a second after we let God down, he offered us hope and everlasting life and forgiveness. And so when you flick over to Matthew and Luke and you get those long genealogies that most people think are boring, aren't they just reminding us that actually the hope of Genesis 3 links us all the way to Jesus Christ in Bethlehem and then at the cross in Jerusalem? And so really, that's our first Advent talk. Because it's easy to rush to Bethlehem, isn't it? It's easy to get the tree up and get excited. But we must start where it really hurts. And it really hurts in the Garden of Eden. That's where death becomes the one that we walk with. That's where evil becomes our constant companion. And most human beings are hopeless. But we know there's one coming and has already come who will stamp on the head of evil. He is our saviour and our friend. We get to call him Lord and brother. And we know that he is coming back the second advent. And that will be death's final blow. And it will be finished forever and ever and ever. And we will be with him in glory. And what Eden didn't do, we will experience in the new Jerusalem forever. And there will be no return of that serpent. That slithering, nasty thing will be destroyed in the lake of fire in Revelation. And in the new Jerusalem, Eden restored, there will be no one that will whisper to us ever again, did God really say? Because we will know exactly what God said because we will see him face to face. If that doesn't say Merry Christmas, nothing else will. Let's pray. Father, we just lift up um, everything we've said this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the way you, uh, Lord, this story of salvation that we, we condense into such a small sentence every now and again. Lord, is huge and long and amazing. And Lord, starting from the origins of old, ending at the end of history. Lord, right in the middle is the crucifixion of your son, his resurrection, his ascension. And Lord, I thank you that we have in that story all the hope we need. Lord, human beings do everything they can to, Lord, wrestle and live with evil and darkness. But the Christian can say, it has no power over me. It will be dead one day. And we will live forever and ever. And we say amen to that. Amen.